For the second straight week, you're coming in semi-delirious, I would say, on lack of sleep. But uh, how are you going to rally and promise the folks a good product today? Listen, I am purely motivated off the fact that while this was the, I'd say, worst week of the season, a lot of one-sided games in this one, uh, just from a you know total slate perspective, it had some of the most interesting games in the season and also some of the weirdest finishes that we've seen so far and i'm really excited to break this one down it's always a fun time getting back in the studio yep it's a it's a monday staple at this point fall is in the air kale i know you haven't talked about that yet so far this year but uh 50 degrees in syracuse really starting to cool down and and as the as the weather cools down football always starts to heat up so Diving right into week one, I think the four things we learned, and I'm going to start with the game that probably got the most pub coming out of yesterday, and that would be the Patriots-Cowboys game, and I know that we don't like to you know, we don't like to talk too negatively about this Patriots team, because they're learning and growing as the year goes on, uh, but I think what we learned from that game is probably the right team still won, and the Patriots really lost out on a golden opportunity to steal that game knowing that the stats were so disparate in the Cowboys' favor, knowing that the Patriots got a few lucky breaks along the way, uh, fumble at the goal line, Kendrick Bourne play, I don't really know what happened on the safety coverage. He just let him go right by. Uh, and ultimately, it was just some decision-making and some you know, inability to make some key executions when it counted that allowed that one to slip away for him. Yeah, my issue with this game doesn't really lie with anyone on the offense. You know, Mac Jones... Played a very solid game. I think the real onus at this point kind of falls on the coaching staff, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Bill Belichick punted in fourth and one, fourth and two, fourth and three, and fourth and four decisions throughout this game. In a matchup where they had one of the premier teams in the NFL this season pretty much on the ropes, they had the lead with two minutes just over on the clock let up a field goal to the Cowboys but just some really bad personnel decisions uh Bill Belichick kneeling with what 90 seconds left to go in overtime just completely burning clock and they're only they were four points clear of Dallas at the time they had the ball to start the second half and that's how Bill defended this decision was to say oh we were getting the ball back to start the second half I don't find that to be a legitimate excuse because We've seen that the Cowboys can put up a bunch of points at once. So if you have the chance to bury them, go up 24-10, 28-10, you got to take that chance. And Belichick was known for doing the double score where they would put one up uh, right before halftime, get the ball back, and put up another score. Uh, that was a big thing in the Tom Brady era. But there were points where Belichick just decided to take it into halftime knowing that they would have it in the back of the second – or getting it back at the start of the second half. And that was a thing in the Brady era because – he would normally do that when they were really stagnant offensively. It would give them a bit of breathing room, time to think it over, and Brady would then eventually come back and, and inject some sort of offensive life into this system, drive a comeback, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a new-look Patriots team, and Belichick really hasn't put this one into the hands of Mac Jones yet. You look at the run-pass splits. You look at how little opportunity that Mac Jones had to really shine. And, yeah, when he did, Dallas made mistakes, 
the Kendrick Bourne 70-yard touchdown was really impressive to see. Uh, I mean, and they had points taken off the board, too. Jacoby Myers is still waiting to get his first touchdown of the year. It keeps getting taken off the board. It'll be so exciting when it finally happens. Yeah, he hasn't scored a touchdown since college, man. But, I mean, really, this really comes down at this point to just how the Pats are operating. This doesn't even get into the fact that the Pats made Hunter Henry and John Lou Smith tied for a third highest paid tight end in the NFL and they really aren't using them. And it's not for a lack of the plays that they're making when they actually do get to use them. But I mean this is just an it's a weird position for the Patriots to be in. I don't think they're as bad as their two and four record, but I also don't think they're doing much to improve it at this point. Yeah, and you look back specifically I think the one that burns is the decision in overtime. You know, you win the coin toss, you feel like you're you're in a position to take control of the game. You get a couple first downs, and second and five from your own 44, I think at that point you really kind of have to decide if you're in four-down territory or not. And they seem to be extremely indecisive because first they run it on second and five, picks up two yards, okay, whatever, not a, not a terrible play, definitely not a good play. And then third and three, incomplete pass, oh, it's punt time. Like if you're not going to go for it on fourth and three, then you can't throw the ball. You can't run the ball on second and five. It's just there's there's some sort of disconnect there. I don't know whether to pin that conservatism on McDaniel's, Belichick, or a combination of both. But you have to know in that situation that you're you're outgunned in terms of firepower. Like you haven't you haven't realistically stopped Dak in what was it? Not since the first drive of the second half had they done anything but score or miss a field goal. So it just really really stuck out to me that there was some some cognitive dissonance there. Yeah, I don't even mind the decision to run, in all honesty. But, I mean, it also doesn't help, you know, Nelson Aguilar drops that big play at the start of overtime. Uh, you can't really go back to him a second time if he's, you know, at a, <laughs> a tough play like that. But, I mean, yeah, yeah. running and on third and short, then running on fourth and one, like, find a way to make this work. Yeah, missed a face mask on that, too. I don't really understand how the refs could be looking right at that and see Aguilar's face mask get pulled. I mean, I don't know if that's an uncatchable ball, and therefore you can't call the face mask, but it was right there. Uncatchable so. passes have not existed in 2021. Also that's true. Just a fact. Also true. Uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, if you're the Patriots, you've just got to know, like, 82 plays for the Cowboys, 50 for you, 567 yards for the Cowboys, 335 for you. You're not going to stop them one more time after you punt that ball back to them. So that's got to be your shot right there. But it is what it is. We feel like the better team ended up winning just some – some Pat's frustrations, I think, knowing that that one got away. Uh, and let's move on to some of the marquee games of the afternoon from yesterday. Uh, I think there were two that really stuck out. Uh, there was Browns Cardinals and there was Ravens Chargers. Kale really thought these two games kind of mirrored each other. So what was your synopsis from yesterday of these two games? Yeah, I'm kind of lumping my two takes into uh, just consolidating them into Two statement wins from both uh, the Ravens and the Cardinals, two top teams in their respective conferences. Let's start with Ravens Chargers here. I am constantly impressed by this Baltimore Ravens team, answering every call that they have at this point. I mean, coming down to it, like starting the season off with a tough overtime loss, the uh, Las Vegas Raiders notwithstanding, this is a really, really impressive Baltimore team. Offensively, they are operating in a way that we've really not seen. Lamar Jackson actually spreading it out, uh, really working the air on top of actually, you know, doing things on the ground. They now have contributions 
on top of Latavius Murray, they've got Le'Veon Bell in the mix. They've got Devontae Freeman going on. Lamar Jackson's still doing things with his legs. But at the same time, I am so impressed with this Baltimore passing offense. Lamar Jackson's operating a passing offense that we've never really seen from them. Currently coming into this game, uh, Baltimore ranked 7th in passing DVOA from football outsiders. Lamar Jackson was a top 10 quarterback in EPA per play per dropback. He's been really impressive and I'm really excited to see. This is the first game that Rashad Bateman was in the mix and although he didn't have a massive breakout game, there were just routes that he ran where I got really excited about how he's going to look going forward when Baltimore starts to implement him further. Hollywood Brown not really getting the ball rolling again, but I mean Mark Andrews is getting back in the mix. They're getting a lot of stuff out of Devin Duvernay. Sammy Watkins is going to be back in the fold. I'm really just impressed with how this Baltimore offense is operating in the face of so many injuries this season. They've been really adaptable, and that goes for the defensive side of the ball too. You know, Calais Campbell is doing Calais Campbell things, but at, you know, at the same time, this is a really good mix of veterans and rookies. Adafi always been a really standout player so far this season, but Justin Houston's also generating a lot of pressure. They've had a really balanced team, and I don't think this is something that we really saw coming into this season as a potential outcome for Baltimore. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail right on the head there, and the word is balance, because if you look at this game, they won it in a way that was completely opposite of the way they won last week, where they had to air it out, and everyone was talking about, like, oh, Lamar's a running back, huh? Like, look at these passing numbers. Well, yesterday, Lamar goes 19-27 for only 167 yards, a touchdown and two picks, and you still look at it and you think, he played a pretty solid game, and they kept the ball on the ground 38 times, and they only threw 27, and the defense just showed up and dominated. And they haven't done that every week this year. This isn't like a 2,000 Ravens defense where they're just going to completely obliterate offenses. But yesterday it was a great matchup for them, I think, even though we didn't necessarily see that coming in. Uh, they got some standout efforts on in the front seven, in the secondary. Uh, one guy I wanted to highlight was Deshaun Elliott. Ended up with an interception and a sack and another pass breakup. Just a really good all-around effort. And I think that's just, you know, we didn't necessarily see on paper coming in how good a matchup it was for the Ravens. But then you get to the end of that first quarter and the Ravens have already run for 85 yards and you're just like, whoa. Um, so obviously the Chargers rushing defense needs some work here. But I think neither of us ended up being that worried about the Chargers moving forward coming out of this one as, as much as that might seem counterintuitive. Yeah, my... Uh with the Chargers, it really comes down to, at this point, this team has really thrived on fourth down. They were 7-for-8, and their only mistake so far was a fake punt uh, sniffed out by Hunter Renfro in that Vegas Monday Night Football game. But, you know, today, that's a high-variant thing. It happened to swing completely in the other direction today. L.A. was 3-for-12 on third down, 1-for-4 on fourth down. And I know a lot of people were freaking out about a fourth down attempt way inside their own zone. The thing is, LA's already had success doing that. They did it against the Cleveland Browns on a do-or-die situation. And, you know, it it ended up paying off in that situation, and it didn't here. And you can't just go by the fact that the outcome determines whether or not it was a good decision. It has to be you're going for it in this decision. 
on fourth and one especially, you're making it around 65 to 70% of the time. That is absolutely the odds you want to take to actually convert that. You're not playing for the 30%. You're playing for the majority. You're playing for your best possible decision to win. Yeah. Holding the Chargers offense, though, under four yards per play is not something I think is going to happen many, if any, more times this season. Uh, And I think we do just have to recognize that they got down early, never were able to establish a rhythm. Austin Eckler, I think we both think he's better than six carries for seven yards. Uh, I think we both think Herbert is better than five yards a pass and uh, 22 of 39. So uh, it's it's a bit of an anomaly, but that takes absolutely nothing away from the Ravens, who I think are kind of starting to establish themselves, if not you know the 1B to Buffalo's 1A, then at least right behind. I mean, we're going to have to see how the the listeners are already going to know, but we're going to have to see how Buffalo looks in Tennessee tonight. But I really, that was a very impressive all-around effort from Baltimore. Yeah, and mirroring that with the other game I want to talk about, the Arizona Cardinals versus the Cleveland Browns. Again, Arizona answering every single call that we asked them to. This is, I mean, again, let's talk about really interesting offenses because it's not like Cliff Kingsbury's moved away from running air raid. It's just the sheer multiplicity of a team like Arizona. Kyler's been playing fantastically under pressure, but it's not like, you know, that might come down to earth at some point, but Kyler Murray's still proven he's a really strong quarterback, really strong quarterback, and he has a ton of weapons around him. It's not just the fact that he needs to go to DeAndre Hopkins, you know, 10, 12, 15 times a game anymore. DeAndre Hopkins finished third on the receptions list and tied for third with three other th- receivers on the targets list. A.J. Green has been, you know, he's really got some Cincinnati stank off him at this point. Christian Kirk, when Rondell Moore is starting to be your checkdown option, you've got a really good setup going. Chase Edmonds is really effective as a first-half passing back where you're really trying to stretch a defense thin. When you've tired him out, you can just send James Conner out there, and he's a physical bowling ball that's just going to plow through your defense and ask him to make tackles when they're sucking wind. On On the defensive side of the ball, it's, you know, again, it's been an absolute anomaly. No one expected the Cardinals to be as good defensively as they were coming into this season, and it's been really, really impressive to me. The dynamic duo of Chandler Jones and J.J. Watt breathes down quarterbacks' necks. It proved itself really effective once again against Cleveland with two missing tackles. Baker Mayfield, yeah, he's injured, but he was really starting to turtle up a little bit there. The secondaries looked phenomenal. They're really shutting down teams, and it's, I mean, I, I am thoroughly impressed with just how dominant this Cardinals team is. Just top to bottom, they're finding different ways to win. They're really capitalizing on other teams' mistakes, and it's tough to say that a 6-0 and team isn't the best team in its conference or in football, but I still believe that even though I don't think, you know, they're probably number three behind where Buffalo's at currently. Yeah, maybe even number five or six you look at teams like Tampa and LA they're still right there as well but it's really you know they're answering every question that everyone's presented at them it's a constant week in and week out finding ways to win finding ways to continue this level of success that we thought might be just an anomaly 
Yeah, and you bury the lead there as well. I mean, we talk about, uh, you talked about Cliff Kingsbury getting away from the air raid. Cardinals got away from Cliff Kingsbury yesterday, and Vance Joseph steps in and does a phenomenal job, uh, having the time of his life, as we might say. Uh, so got to give props to him that, you know, I don't want to go too far into the Raiders-Broncos game, but uh, Rich Bisakia had an awesome, awesome debut as well. I know that's a name that we probably didn't think we'd drop on this pod at the beginning of the season. Uh, but shout out to uh, to the Raiders on their dub yesterday. That's probably all we're going to touch on with that. Uh, but yeah, going back to the Cardinals, I mean, it's it's like you said. There's really no one formula for this team to win games, and ultimately, that is the formula that helps teams succeed later on in the season and into January. So. Uh, I know we haven't seen that from Cliff, from Kyler, or even from the Cardinals in any recent memory, but you just keep talking about, like, week after week, they just keep passing tests, and I think this was another notch on that belt. Yeah, and like the Ravens-Chargers game, like like us with the Chargers, I'm not too worried about this Browns game just because of the outcome. I think a lot of people are going to wonder if the Browns were a fraudulent team or if they were really set up to be some sort of contender in the AFC. I think that's a bit of hyperbole. I think it's a bit of an overreaction. you got to remember, Nick Chubb was out of this game. Kareem Hunt goes out of this game. They're missing two starting tackles. Jarvis Landry's been missing. Baker Mayfield's been banged up. And he's, you know, he might miss time headed into next week. We're not sure yet. But at the same time, I, I'm a little concerned because this is, and, and again, possibly let's chalk this up to injury but Baker Mayfield is really starting to turtle out there this is a game where Chandler Jones and J.J. Watt are breathing down your necks Baker Mayfield ends up with five sacks for 23 yards of loss I really think some of those sacks end up coming down to Baker holding on to the ball too long there were points where he's staring down receivers where he has open looks underneath uh Odell on the goal line especially in their red zone Baker missed a prime opportunity there because he was staring down a receiver at the other end uh, he also is double clutching the ball. When you know that you need to get a ball out very quickly and you decide to hesitate or hold on too long, it's going to completely blow up the play, and that's going to kill any chance of offensive success you have in the passing game. And when Kareem Hunt gets hurt, you can't lean on the run game to bail you out at that point. Yeah, and they, I mean, the stats from yesterday are not great anyway. They look really bad if you take out the, the Hail Mary at the end of the first half. I mean, Baker ends up with 8.4 yards per pass, but over 20% of that comes just from the Hail Mary. And same thing with Peoples-Jones. Peoples-Jones ends up having a 100-yard receiving game, but if you take that out, he only ends up with 44 yards. So it's really a, it's a Browns offense that, I, you know, I think they'll be okay when they have everyone back. I think that's uh, something you already touched on. But as it is right now, I mean, you look at this Thursday night matchup coming up with the Broncos – uh, are you going to have Chubb back? Are you going to have Hunt back? Is Baker going to be okay? It's just a lot of variables to figure out in the span of three days, and it's an instance in which the Thursday night really could pose a problem for a team that I think we would have had as comfortable favorites over a Denver team that's also really been struggling most recently. Yeah, but beyond this one blip, I still think that they've got a lot of time. You know, After Denver, they face a Pittsburgh team that, yeah, it's a division rival, but it's it's tough to say how this team really, like, I think Cleveland should have a fine time with Pittsburgh, even on the Sunday night football game. That's playing against a pretty weak Seattle defense, even though a couple guys came out to play a little bit more. I think Cleveland should be just fine playing against them. Bengals are frisky, but who knows what that is. We've already talked about the Pats. Detroit, uh, they've got about five games where, you know, they could turn things around if they need to. 
you know, even if they fall to Denver, they can still go three and one down that or three and one down that next four game stretch before they have to go back and play Baltimore on the road. Then they head into their bye. But I mean, th- this is I wouldn't worry too much about Cleveland falling to a six and zero Cardinals team that is playing well above where anyone expected them to be at this point. Yeah, but let me flip that on you as well. I mean, you look at the back end of their schedule. They go Ravens, Ravens, Raiders, Packers, Steelers, Bengals. Those are their final six games. So if you head into those games needing to go 4-2, and 5-1 and one to make the playoffs, that starts to become a real challenge. So yes, this is a very winnable part of their schedule. It also might be the most crucial part of their schedule to capitalize in these next five where they need to win three or four uh, at the bare minimum because once you get into that back half meat grinder and you, you still haven't played a single divisional game yet. So this is like we're not out on Cleveland, but now is the time to hit the gas pedal because they've got a lot of challenges coming up ahead. But let's talk about another team in that division because there was a game yesterday that I think a lot of people – had a sneaking suspicion was going to turn out. It was it was one of those things where it's like, nobody expects the Lions to hang around with this Bengals team, but everyone was saying it. So in, in essence, everyone did think the Lions had a chance to hang around. But instead, the Bengals just come out, hammer them from the get-go. Burrow looks awesome again. They ran the ball effectively. Joe Mixon had his you know best or second-best game of the season. And what I really want to talk about from this game is... I think the Bengals got the Jamar Chase pick right, and that was not a popular take on draft night. And obviously I think Sewell was a great talent and still has the potential to pan out as a great talent in this league. But if you're building a team around a quarterback, if you're if you're saying, okay, Joe Burrow is our number one pick from last year, we are actively trying to build this team around Joe Burrow as the cornerstone of our franchise – doesn't it make sense to go get his favorite target from college, the guy that he's already built the most rapport with? And not only was it on display in this game, just another casual four reception for 97 yards. Like, you see him basically make one big catch per quarter nowadays. But it's been bearing out over the entire season. And through six games, he's already over 500 yards receiving on pace to challenge Justin Jefferson's rookie record, especially with the extra game. That helps. But... I just think you have to be really impressed with what you've seen with him so far, and I think there's going to be you know, years down the line where you can still improve the offensive line, and, and now that they've kind of assembled some weapons around Burrow, I think you know, you're going to be really excited about them heading into this coming offseason. Listen, I'm not as high on Cincinnati as you might be. I think it's probably a nice overperformance over expectation. Uh, I think they've found a lot of success early, and you can't forget that this was a 10 nothing game headed into halftime. This was a pretty winnable game for Detroit if things don't bounce Cincinnati's way and Cincinnati just takes over in the second half. But it was it was up there. It was somewhat contentious. The thing with me is I don't know if this, you know, if this team finishes what, 11-6, 12-5, I don't I don't think that's a realistic outcome for them. I think divisional play is going to get really tough for them. I think they still have some opponents down the road that are going to rough them up, and I don't know how this team fares in a playoff run. I think they still have a lot of building to do. However, I will say about the Jamar Chase pick, Penny Sewell's looked very good. He's looked very solid in Detroit. He's really one of the only cornerstones of this Detroit offensive line, allowing Jared Goff to only have one sack taken during that entire game. He's looked really good. Jamar Chase and 
Penn High School in terms of where they ranked. At that point, I think it kind of came down to who you preferred. Uh, it, it came down to team preference at that point. You can find more offensive linemen. You can build around with them. What you can't find is the superhuman level connection that Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase have. A lot of the prep work coming out before Burrow was the fact that these passes to Jamar Chase deep down the field out of LSU, when he was coming out of the draft, when Jamar Chase was entering the draft, you couldn't really determine what this either of these prospects looks like because some of these passes looked like you're throwing it 60 yards down the field and Joe Burrow's hand, like practically handing it to him. It, it was that well placed. Just this level of high caliber play from Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase is a good receiver on its own, but this added benefit of this ballistic connection between Burrow and Chase has been, it's, it's really made it seem like Chase is probably, but you know, in the way that Jefferson was probably rookie of the year over Justin Herbert last year. Jamar Chase might get beat out by a uh, less performing quarterback, but Jamar Chase is very much deserving of offensive rookie of the year through six weeks because I think he is a massive reason why this Cincinnati Bengals team is even in the conversation for the top of the AFC. Last thing I'll say on that is I don't believe in the Bengals this year. I absolutely don't. I think that they've had an easy stretch of schedule. They've gotten lucky in some places. They faced the corpse of Big Ben. They had a chance to grab an impressive win against Green Bay, and they bumbled it away on kicking problems. But I think ultimately when you see things get down to the nitty-gritty, this team's going to fade. However, what I do want to say about it is that I think they got the pick right, and I think they're building something for the future. And now that they've got that receiving core figured out with Boyd, with Higgins, you come back next year and you start to really kind of think about where you can add on the offensive line and where you can start to build a bit more impressive on the defensive side of the ball as well. So that's our that's our list of takeaways for the week. I want to get into game balls, and I'll start things off. Um, yeah, C.D. Lamb. That's 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 what I got. C.D. Lamb's awesome, man. <laughs> he was incredible yesterday. Uh, just kept getting better as the game went on. Every time the Cowboys needed a big play, he was there. Uh, I think, you know, you put Jalen Mills on him. That's a bit of a tough matchup for Mills, but uh, Lamb just got wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Uh, nine catches, 149, and two touchdowns ends up being the final line. Had a walk-off touchdown, always a nice factor when you think about getting the game ball. And as a bonus to the bonus, uh, just mean mugging right in Jalen Mills' face after scoring the game-winning touchdown. Uh, you know, maybe if you're a Pats fan, you don't love to see it, but I think we objectively thought that was kind of awesome after the night he had. So props to CD. What do you got on him? No, hats off, man. I mean, it was a real impressive effort. This Cowboys, the weapons that this Cowboys team has really almost negates the fact that Mike McCarthy's coaching them and <laughs> that the... Some of the uh, decisions have been very questionable because I think if anyone else is coaching this team, even you know a league average coach, someone you know with a, a, a just an iota of creativity with an offensive playbook, I think this team is absolutely top of the line in terms of offensive production. And you know they already are, but it's just the sheer raw talent they have on this roster is pretty impressive. It's crazy because they're still going to get Michael Gallup back too, and. Tony Pollard's like a gadget guy for them. He'd be a number one running back on 28 teams in the NFL. Like, it's just absurd. And Dalton Schultz is great, too. Dalton Schultz is going to get paid this offseason as a tight end, maybe by the Cowboys. So, Justin, it's unbelievable the stable they've built up on the offensive side of the ball. But go on. No, it's it really just comes down to, you know, I don't think 
Trevon Diggs is playing out of his mind, but I don't know how replicable just the sheer, the sheer ball hawking season he's had is long term. He's still doing, you know, when he's not running interceptions back for touchdowns, he's playing pretty solid pass defense in terms of like a pure coverage perspective. He still gets beat. The reason he has so many interceptions is because he's, you know, constantly being targeted. If he was this good, he wouldn't be targeted at all. Uh, but they, they've, you know, I think as this team starts to flush itself out more and matures a little bit more, they're going to become a real threat. But, I mean, the windows now, like, it's, I, I don't think this is the year that they're fully equipped to do it. Everyone flip-flops whether this is the Super Bowl contender or middle of the NFC, depending on whether the Cowboys win or lose games. But it's, you know, I, I, I'm more measured. I, I at least think like to think I am. I think this is a solid core offensively with some special players defensively. Micah Parsons has looked good as well. But, I mean, yeah, it, this team's got a little bit more work in progress. But, man, hats off to CD. Uh, my offensive game ball of the week comes from a guy that, you know, if we had mentioned him in past years in these same situations, he'd look like a completely different quarterback. It's Kirk Cousins. We touched on Justin, Justin Jefferson earlier this year. It's re- earlier this podcast. It's impressive that they've been able to manage this, you know, receiving core after trading away Stephon Diggs, bringing Justin Jefferson in, getting just as good a production, if not more so. And, you know, Dalvin Cook's looked really good. Alexander Madison has been a nice feeling as well. The offensive line's starting to come together, together a little bit. Christian Darrisaw getting some actual starting snaps now, and he's looked really good. He only allowed one pressure uh, coming into uh, – this game, but I mean, Kirk Cousins, man, has been put in multiple game-winning situations where he's got to manufacture drives and get some really good offense going, and he's completely taken over. Like, this is a, you know, in past years, Kirk Cousins kind of flounders in these situations, and that's why this team, you know, falls toward middle of the pack, ends up near 500, but, you know, Kirk Cousins is stepping up to win games now, lead game-winning drives, which is not something we've typically seen out of him. No, and you you bring up uh, just Jefferson, but the game-winning touchdown ends up going to K.J. Osborne, who I think we've both been pleasantly surprised by as a third option in the receiving core this year. Even dabbled in the K.J. Osborne on the fantasy bench uh, fad at one point. Uh, may have to go back to that after this week. I don't know. Uh, and then Thielen yesterday, balled out. Uh, Monday night, we haven't seen results from Monday night yet, but Thielen otherwise led the league in catches yesterday with 11 uh, for 126 and a touchdown. So you've got to love what you've seen out of him. Uh, I think that the defense is still a huge problem. Uh, they did they did manage to shut Sam Darnold down pretty effectively yesterday, but you just look at their, you know, their, any, any, any defensive metrics, just pure scoring, yards given up, EPA per play, like it's all bad for Minnesota's defense. But the fact that they're sitting at three and three really should be four and two or even five and one uh, if they could have just made a 37-yard field goal against Arizona. There's a lot. There's a lot of potential with this team, and I think uh, we were kind of coming into this Minnesota-Carolina game thinking that one of these two teams was going to emerge as maybe a threat to make the playoffs, and the other was going to fade away a little bit. I think that's kind of what we got. You know, it's, I mean, it's tough to to. Uh, it's you know I don't want to diminish Carolina too much, but, but I mean talk about two ships passing in the yeah, night. Like it's bad. <laughs> Minnesota rises to three and three. Car- uh, Carolina falls to three and three, losing their third straight game after starting out three and zero. This is you know these are teams on two different trajectories at this moment. But I mean yeah, 
Like, I mean, I forgot about K.J. Osborne. I forgot about Tyler Conklin. He's been one of the top offensive tight ends in the league just, you know, in terms of this is more of a fantasy output at that point. But, I mean, Kirk Cousins is now, you know, integrating more people into an offense, bringing up some lesser-known guys. Uh, it's, 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 I mean, that's off to him. It's been a really, really impressive effort. Yeah. Well, Carolina, um, maybe they'll get Christian McCaffrey back at some point this year. I don't know. I'm going to stop anticipating that that's going to happen because it just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talk at length about the running back position on this show. Uh, this is just another example of why you don't pay the running back position. Uh, obviously, we think McCaffrey can be a pretty serious game-breaker when he's in there, but just the fact that he's played six games since he got his contract extension, like this is just episode 1,000 of the show, don't pay your running backs. Uh, let's go into defensive game balls. Uh, Kale, why don't you start us off here for defense? Not a big box score presentation out of this one, but I'm, I have to go with Aaron Donald. The LA Rams, he, some of the things that he does on a football field just looks superhuman at this point. He was com- completely undeterred by having two Giants offensive linemen covering him. And while he didn't show up on the box court too much, he had half a sack, he had one solo tackle, two total tackles. What was really impressive is the fact that he receives a double assignment, is constantly fighting through it, constantly generating pressure on Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones ends up having four sacks. But, you know, with only one being created, but, or, you know, half a sack, technically, getting credit for Donald, what was really impressive was the fact that, you know, Donald's penetration on the offensive line creates those sacks for other teammates. Donald's presence breathing down Daniel Jones's neck, like I always mention, you know, distracts him from seeing Taylor Rapp in coverage, where Rapp picks up two interceptions, Robert Rochelle picks up a third. Uh, it, it forces... You know, fumbles where they shouldn't happen. It's a presence in stopping the run game as well. Aaron Donald does it all, and he doesn't have to necessarily show off on the stat sheet under his name because he's a selfless guy. He doesn't mind giving the credit to other people. He doesn't mind when, like, you know, other people are getting sacks or if the turnovers are turning or showing up in the coverage side of the game instead of in the pass rush side of the game or the front seven side of the game. It's been a really, really impressive effort, and I don't think he's going to repeat in his umpteenth uh, Defensive Player of the Year award, but, I mean, he could really win it every year. He, I mean, I think if you just go based on pure impact from a year-to-year standpoint, he should win it every year. It's a lot like the 2010s LeBron with the NBA MVP. Like, you don't just want to give it to Aaron Donald every year, but realistically, he should win it every year. And this was another week where he was the best player on the field, offense, defense, anything you want to talk about. Uh, one other thing I do want to touch on briefly from this game is the hex that the Giants have on them as a franchise. Uh, we saw it last week with uh, them getting their first win, and immediately Saquon gets hurt, and Daniel Jones, we thought, was badly concussed. Now, it turns out Jones is okay to play this week, but he throws for no touchdowns, three interceptions, and 4.7 yards per pass. It looks like rookie Daniel Jones again. And meanwhile, Kadarius Tony, a guy we were super-duper high on, and if you want to ask me how much I was high on him, I overpaid to get him in my fantasy waiver wire this week, so there's egg on my face today because Kadarius Tony comes out, looks like lightning in a bottle again in the first quarter of this game, but because he plays for the New York Giants, he immediately has to exit with an injury. So it's just uh, it's a house of horrors once again, MetLife Stadium. 
They honor the 2011 team 10-year anniversary with a drubbing at the hands of an actually good NFC team. They're now 19-52 and since the boat picture. That's worse than the NFL. So, uh, again, like you don't want to go revisionist history, but maybe that wasn't the best choice for an Instagram post. And it's just a mess. It's a complete mess at MetLife, and I'm sorry to those who have to endure it as fans. It is funny that the Giants only overtook that worst record in history since that time period because the Jets had a bye. Correct. <laughs> and the Jets have one less loss on their record now. I believe they sit at 19-50 and 50 during that time period. Correct, yeah. The only 19-50 uh, and 50 versus 19-52 and 52 because there's the loss immediately after the boat game and then there's the bye week. So it's it's atrocious. I Showing up to that stadium weekend after weekend as a as a security guard or a, a concessions worker has got to be so painful. Someone light some sage, like get the demons out of that place, like just a complete exorcism of MetLife Stadium. Correct. Let's move on to my defensive game ball. This was a pretty obvious one. T.J. Watt. Like, T.J. Watt last night just completely took over that game in overtime. He was already having a great game before the start of overtime, but... When it's winning time, you want your defensive stars, the guys that you pay millions and maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in, in TJ's case uh, to, to put it all on the line, and he delivered two sacks, three tackles for loss, broke up three passes, and uh, so you just transitioning to overtime, he gets the sack on third and four when the Seahawks were kind of at the edge of field goal range, forces the punt there. Uh, and then the Seahawks get the ball back because Pittsburgh's offense doesn't move the ball, and he immediately forces a fumble on the very first play from Geno Smith, and that's the game. So you want to look at a guy who, I mean, he was in his brother's shadow a few years ago. He was uh, he was the Watt brother who was really good, but, like, let's be honest, J.J. is the defensive player of the year. Like, this is just his little brother. Like, T.J. is not just J.J.'s little brother anymore. T.J. is his own superstar uh, he's the best player on the Steelers' defense, maybe the best player on the Steelers overall, uh, and just made a made a winning play when winning players have to do that. So got to give him his game ball. And I think us giving these two guys defensive game balls this week really means the best players in the league are starting to shine as we get deeper into the season. Yeah, it is. Just what Pittsburgh is able to do on defense, It it's such a shame that Big Ben is spiking balls into fumbles into the turf. Counteract just what is going on on the defensive side of things. Yeah, it hasn't been as purely dominant as it has been in years past, but, I mean, Pittsburgh's still hanging around there. Like, it's people are kind of forgetting about them because the Ravens look so good, the Browns have been so dominant in, you know, or not dominant but competitive Cincinnati has shined recently. Uh, people are starting to forget about Pittsburgh, and I don't think everything's coming together. Big Ben still looks like he needs to be taken out behind the back of the barn. Uh, but, I mean, the receivers look great. Najee Harris has been impressive. This defense is still it, – when it shines, it shines. But it's it really makes you think how much more sample size we need to get a read on this because I still – cannot that win over buffalo in week one still looks more and more anomalous by the week well so does the 38 to 3 saints over packers win so sometimes you just have to throw week one out in the wash especially during covid times i think but uh i'm gonna move on to special teams now our favorite teams guys (laughs) and uh last week we had a blocked punt 
from a linebacker on the Eagles who was kind of a, you know, he was a somewhat regular player on their defense. But this week we had a blocked punt from a true special teamer, a linebacker who only appears on special teams, has 14 career tackles coming into this game in three years, and comes out, and, and guys, I swear I watched more than one game this week. This is a KO bit I'm doing now, but <laughs> I swear I watched more than one football game. But the Cowboys' Luke Gifford blows up a punt from Jake Bailey. Uh, Jake Bailey now has had punts blocked in two straight weeks after never having a punt blocked before in his entire career. So maybe that's something the Pats want to look into getting fixed. But Luke Gifford, 14 career tackles, hasn't really made a play yet in his entire career in three years. And he just keeps showing up to the weight room every week, keeps showing up to meetings and gets his chance and makes this play. I wish it had changed the game a little bit more for this really to fit my narrative because the Cowboys end up getting stuffed on fourth and goal on the ensuing drive. But, hey, one one punt blocked across the league this week. It was by a player who has had a bumpy start to his career, actually got suspended last season for violating the banned substance policy, uh, but keeps coming back. And, you know, I'm all about second chances. So Luke Gifford's getting my, defense, or my special teams game ball this week. Yeah, I mean, a play like that, while it is Luke, uh, sorry, a play like that, while it is good for Luke Gifford, really, again, highlights these mistakes by the Patriots coaching staff. Uh, that gives the that gives the Cowboys the ball back at New England's 17-yard line. Cowboys put together a seven-play drive, burn off three minutes of clock, but New England salvages it by stuffing Dak Prescott at the goal line on fourth and one. They stuff four straight first and goal or uh, goal line plays from the one yard line the defense stands on its head punches the ball out recovers a fumble by Dak recovers it in the end zone Pats get it back with 90 seconds left they get a gift and Dolchek kneels in the halftime and does nothing with it for 90 seconds like those like if your massive game shifting plays like a block punt in your own territory, if those plays then get counteracted by like really productive play, you got to capitalize on those opportunities. And Bill Belichick just sat on, like sat back, took the ball in the halftime, and you know counted his blessings and figured this was just you know chalk one up to good play and let's not capitalize. Like you gotta, it's got to be more active. You got to actually want to win this game. It's I don't know. I don't want to ramble because now I'm gonna I'm I'm getting too hot about it. <laughs> well, shout out to Jawan Bentley as well. I know we talked about the the goal line stand. Jawan Bentley punching the ball out as Dax extending for the goal line ends up with 13 tackles yesterday to lead the Pats. Uh, hasn't really been a standout player for most of his career, but has really come into his own with a lot of the guys on that defense this year. And I wish we had a chance to give him a defensive game ball today. But once again, the Patriots lost. The Patriots made a bunch of bad decisions. So we'll stop harping on it now. Kale, special teams game ball, please. Felt fitting that uh, a game held in London in a football soccer country uh, ended with some, you know, footwork. Matthew Wright, Jacksonville Jaguars, had a uh, very fitting Bennett like Beckham field goal. Looked like it was, you know, going to miss. Hooks right in, barely hangs around the right uh, goal post. That was cool. It was, yeah. Listen, <laughs> kickers are athletes. They do things. We don't like them kicking often, but, you know, when they do things, it gets pretty cool. We've had some really cool field goal moments, both on the defensive and offensive side of the ball uh, this season. And then Matthew Wright walks it off, gives the Jaguars their first game-winning field goal in a very long time, breaks a 20-game winless streak, 
the third longest in the history of the NFL. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, hats off to Matthew Wright for breaking a curse. You hope that's not where Jacksonville is going to play long term, but uh, they feel right at home playing there. Absolutely. Great win for the now 1-5 Jacksonville Jaguars. They broke the second longest losing streak in the Super Bowl era second yesterday. Longest, second longest losing streak. We apologize for our statistical inaccuracies. But we're going to have to come back to this game because as much as Jacksonville won the game, I also feel like Miami lost it, and we'll get into that. Epic foreshadowing. But before we do that, let's talk uniforms from yesterday. Solid uniform day, I think. Not, not our favorite, but a couple gems. I'll take the lead here because there was a slam dunk for me. Two top seven or eight uniform teams, and one of them brought out some beautiful throwbacks yesterday. So that's obviously the Bears playing at home against the Packers. A game in which a lot of memes came out of the ending. Um, Aaron Rodgers apparently got the double bird from some lady in the front row in Chicago, but we didn't see that. All we saw was him say, I own you. I've always owned you. I still own you. I effing own you. (laughs) And then after the game, (laughs) Devontae Adams just posts an Instagram. The caption is, what 12 said. So... (laughs) Epic stuff coming out of Green Bay or coming out of Soldier Field yesterday, and an epic uniform matchup. Packers greens are always beautiful. These Bears throwbacks with all the extra stripes, like somehow it just works. It's not too busy. The kind of Michigan style helmets, uh, they still play for me. Uh, navy and orange against green and gold, like it's just such a good color contrast. Like a primary and a secondary color each, and really good shades of them. Uh, wasn't any close second place for me, so. Happy to reward that game. Yeah, I mean, you really stole the good one. <laughs> Honestly, I'm going to uh, give this one to Arizona and Cleveland. That's disgusting, but go on. Nope, it's not, and I'll tell you why. Love when NFL teams don't go with just the same like rotation of red or blue or yellow, like standard, I mean, there's no yellow teams, so just standard boilerplate colors that we see all the time. I love the Browns' brown uniforms with the orange helmets, white pants, with the orange accent. I think it's a really clean look, and I think it's one of the few, you know, non-standard colored jerseys in the league that actually really works. And I think these all-whites from Arizona are by far their best uniform set. I think the white socks with the red accent, the way the jersey's set up, it works. The white helmets with just the red cardinal sticking out, I get Jacksonville's a purist and he's a weirdo about it. But give teams credit for some creativity. I think in terms of a pretty lackluster uniform set, these are by far their best look that they threw out. And it's against a creative Cleveland uniform. So, listen, let's have some more, you know, creativity in the uniform department because if we continue to poo-poo decent ideas that kind of work in execution, we're just going to keep getting people trying to do, like, the Falcons and Rams gradient setups or they're just going to be the same boring cycle of jerseys that have existed for the past 50 years in the NFL. Let's have a little bit of innovation. Let's have a little bit more creative color and uniform design choices. And I think, yeah, Arizona does have the best uniform setup. Don't get me wrong. I think I just peaked the mic there with just the crazy voice raise I just had. But this is the best set that they have, and I think it looks good from a faraway lens. And I don't like the reds look good, but in terms of whenever they wear their whites, the white pants and the white helmet, it's it's a decent, it's a really good set. I'm not, I'm gonna stop. 
I really hate the Cardinals uniforms, so this is fine. You know, we have different opinions. I like the Browns. I have put the Browns in my uniform section this year. I did it three times last year, I believe. This Cardinals uniform set is due for a complete makeover. The striping makes no sense. They the, look like feathers, Jackson. No, they it's don't. made after birds. There's no feathers. The The gray face mask gives this weird, like, trying to be retro vibe, and then the striping is so, like, 2004. They're, they're so overdue for a makeover. I agree that they shouldn't try to go, like, weird gradient in their makeover, but clean it up. Great colors, great mascot. We got to figure out some way to balance the red with just a tiny little hint of black in there somewhere, so... Hopefully they get to do a redesign soon. But now we got to talk head scratchers from yesterday. And I think the most obvious one for me comes from that same London game. And I want to give Dublin, Ohio superstar Urban Meyer all the credit for winning his first NFL game. I want to give Trevor Lawrence his shine. You know, he had a 300-yard performance, turned in a dub. But Brian Flores was atrocious down the stretch yesterday. And... I'm going to briefly walk through a few of the decisions they made. They decided to go for it on fourth and one, or at least ostensibly they were going to go for it. It wasn't really clear. It seemed like they were probably just excusing themselves from not going for it and then took a delay of game. So that was with six and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter. That was a play where they, in hindsight, definitely should have tried to pick up the first down. Up by three at the time, Jacksonville goes down and gets the bend it like Beckham field goal. Then Miami takes the ball back with three and a half minutes to play in a tie game. It's a made-for-TV situation, like Tua Tugavailoa, go win the game. And instead, they get it to fourth and one, once again at their own 46. So apparently the Miami 46 was just a cursed yard line yesterday. And they just, they go shotgun, they hand it off to Malcolm Brown, who Kale calls a bowling ball, but I call him the team's backup running back, and gets stuffed behind the line, doesn't pick it up. And all of a sudden, you've you've squandered a good situation, I think, with a terrible play call. And all of a sudden, Jacksonville has the ball back with 149 to play. And we're still not done with this head scratcher because they get a beautiful play. Uh, first Jacksonville false starts, classic. Then they get a sack on second and 16 to make it third and 20. But <laughs> this play was run with a minute and two seconds left. Miami had a timeout left. They don't take it. So now it's third and 20. You're guaranteeing that you're not going to get the ball back in regulation. And if Jacksonville runs one or two plays on third and 20 to get back into field goal range, the game's over. So now the clock runs all the way down inside 20 seconds. That means Jacksonville has the ball last no matter what. Lawrence throws for 12 yards to Chenault. Jacksonville still has all their timeouts because you use yours instead, so they take a timeout. Then they throw another pass on fourth and eight for nine yards and down the ball, call their last timeout, and kick the field goal. So Brian Flores, I mean, I wanted to believe that this was going to be a solid year for them. I wanted to believe that he was still a really good coach. I think he demonstrated that aptitude last year, but this was horrible clock management. It was maybe the worst game top to bottom that we've seen coach so far this year. And I don't want to call, I mean, we're definitely not in the business of calling for people's jobs around here, but Brian Flores has got to pick it up or a lot of people are going to start calling for his job. So that's what I got from yesterday. Just a, a rough time out in the UK. Yeah, not great. And it, uh, it makes it even more questionable about the Patriots performance that the Dolphins only win. It's against, against the Patriots. Patriots. <laughs> 
Not that, I'm gonna, not that I'm going to pivot away from this, but, I mean, yeah, these Dolphins have not looked great. I mean, Tua looks fine in the comeback, but, I mean, yeah. I, listen, London games are wonky. If you want to if you want to give Brian Flores a cop out, London games are real wonky. Yeah. Well, I hope Urban Meyer is still partying it up in London this week. I hope he doesn't come home. I hope he spends the entire week enjoying his tea and crumpets and maybe some other pleasantries that the country has to offer. Yeah, my uh, my head-scratching moment of the week would basically be the Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels play-calling decisions, but I think we've already harped, up, harped on that enough throughout this portion of the podcast. I'm instead going to turn to Kansas City and the Washington football team because this is going to double as a bit of a Tuesday reading. Uh, this is by Jackson Mahomes, brother to Pat Mahomes on Twitter. I want to sincerely apologize for accidentally being on the Sean Taylor number 21 at the FedEx field. We were directed to stand in that area, and I meant absolutely no disrespect to him or his family. Jackson Mahomes filmed a TikTok standing on Sean Taylor's 21 on the FedEx field. And it's, listen, I'm not going to give, I don't, I don't get TikTok. I'm not a big dance guy on TikTok. I'm not going to pretend like I get TikTok. I'm not going to tear down Jackson Mahomes' profession here. He can do what he wants, and he can find whatever source of income that he desires. What I will discredit is just Washington's entire handling of the Sean Taylor jersey retirement. The Jackson Mahomes TikTok dancing was an entire controversy embroiled within a much larger controversy that was manufactured, occurred, and atoned for, essentially, within the span of about 10 days, less, a week, tops. Because... Washington football gets completely wrapped up in this John Gruden email scandal. All of the John Gruden and Adam Schefter emails uh, were associated with a much larger story about Dan Snyder and Bruce Allen's uh, potential misconduct that's occurred. Uh, Now the NFL is seemingly completely exonerated, all others involved, so I'm not sure what further the disclosure from these emails we're going to get and whether Dan Snyder or Bruce Allen are going to face any sort of consequences from it. But seemingly out of nowhere... Washington decides that this is the weekend that they're going to retire uh, Sean Taylor's dunk. And Sean Taylor was a staple to the Washington football franchise, passed way too soon, uh, and deserves any sort of better send-off than a random announcement four days prior to the game, uh, not telling the family of Sean Taylor up until that week as well, uh, giving no prior context to this ceremony and no prior grace, wearing throwback uniforms to not even properly pay respects to Sean Taylor. Not throwbacks from when he played, just random throwbacks. Well, that would be tough, I think. You're probably Listen, not going to go back to the to the R-words nomenclature, but I get what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, but at least the uniform setup, at least wear your normal home colors instead of these, you know, these weird maroon and golds that they had. And then Washington doesn't have enough grace to maybe rope off the... Taylor 21 decals that they have on the field or maybe not put them in uh, fan standing areas. I, I don't... Listen, maybe Jackson Mahomes should have had a little bit more forethought to not stand on a number of someone being honored at the game, but this whole thing comes to be because Washington is a terribly run franchise and doesn't really have any sort of care about their branding or players. This was... This entire retirement was a distraction from much larger things going on within the Washington football organization. And now they're let off the hook once again for probably the second time this week uh, just because this, you know, very... And again, this is a minor thing where Jackson Mahomes had to apologize. 
uh, in terms of like the overall reverberations throughout the rest of the league and interrupting news cycles and things like that. But it's still just another way that Washington gets off the hook for not having to actually atone for much larger structural issues within their team's company and organization. It just is like the most obvious cover-up like feel-good thing you've ever seen. And just to further illustrate that point, Washington already retired another number earlier this year. It was Bobby Mitchell who passed away from COVID early in April 2020, and they announced that in June and retired his number in September. So you, there is absolutely no excuse for the short notice in this situation. Sean Taylor is somebody who absolutely deserved such an honor all along, and to basically muck up his memory to use him to distract from something else is just so disgusting. I would expect nothing less from this franchise, and I should probably stop myself before I make myself unemployable in the future. But that was that was awful. So I hate to close on such a negative note, but uh, we'll quickly shift our focus to our patented Monday Night Football uninformed look back. Uh, how about those bills last night, Kale? They look pretty good, huh? Yeah, this looks like a real one-sided one to me. I, like, again, it, it's the very fun, very uninformed Monday Night Football prediction. Uh, if Buffalo is what we think they are, Buffalo rolls in this game. Uh, Buffalo is not only the best defense in football, but is also the best rushing defense in DVOA in football. Uh, I think that they kind of bottle up Derrick Henry. I've been on the Derrick Henry regression train fruitlessly for about as long as I have been this season. Derrick Henry is an absolute statistical anomaly, so anything he does tonight will not surprise me because he is capable of truly any outcome. Uh, so, yeah, maybe he maybe he perseveres, but I, I think this game is a statement win once again for the Buffalo Bills defense. Derrick Henry gets bottled up. A.J. Brown is making his return, I believe, or... Jones. A.J. Brown played last week. Julio Jones is making his return tonight. So we'll get to see Tennessee's offense finally somewhat back to full strength, but we just don't think it's going to matter. Yeah, no. And, and and Tennessee's defense is weak as is, so I think, you know, Buffalo shouldn't have too much of a tro- uh, problem moving the ball against them. Yeah, I think the only thing you can be afraid of if you're Buffalo is you got to capitalize on your scoring chances when you get them. Because if you let Tennessee hang around, second half Derrick Henry can really be a problem. And the Seahawks saw it. We saw it all last season. We've seen it in the playoffs before. Uh, you don't want to let that guy continue to wear down even what looks to be the best rushing defense in football. So put him down early. Get your touchdowns when you get in scoring position, and the Bills should be fine. That's yeah, it, the way we see it. It feels like sometimes Derrick Henry needs like a minimum 25-yard rushes to actually like get something going. Maybe that's wearing down a defense. Maybe that's just he needs something to break one off. But yeah, you you gotta you gotta limit him early, and you gotta be able to shut it down when they start to turn back to the pass later on. Just bury it before they even have a chance to try and grasp for life in the second half. Well, there you have it, folks. We came in here we probably had our our b minus c plus game today but we still found a way to to put a quality start on the board getting into baseball terms we're excited to see how that monday night game turns out you already know we're excited to see how these baseball games turn out for the rest of the week as two red sox fans who are may or may not be nervous about their team's game coming up tonight against uh 
the the abhorrent Houston Astros team that we both uh, don't have much love in our hearts for. And we look forward to talking more football with you again next Tuesday. Kale, before you uh, conk out in your chair here, uh, give give the folks a nice little sign off for their Tuesday. We're one week out for more Manning Cast, and it's I've missed it desperately over the last four weeks when we've had actually decent Monday Night Football games. And next week we get Jameis versus Geno on Monday Night Football. And let's get through this one so we can get to more fun in Eli. That is so exciting. <laughs> Jameis versus Gino in prime time. I'm, I'm already licking my chops. So thank you all for listening. For Kale, I'm Jackson. We'll see you next Tuesday.